0: Whenever your life is over, and we hope that's later rather than sooner, but it's going to happen. At the end, you want to be able to say, You know, my life counted for something. Like Paul, when he was about to leave the earth, he knew that his time of death was near. He said, I have run the race, I have finished it. I'm done. I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith. I remember um, many years ago when I was living in California, and I heard somebody speak one night. He was a minister by the name of Lonnie. He was rather intense. And he was suggesting that my life, rather than watching God work, ought to be involved in working with God. I should kind of get off my spiritual duff and serve the Lord. And I remember as I listened to him that night, he irritated me. He bugged me because I was convicted in my heart and I knew what he was saying was right because up to that point, for some odd reason, I always thought it read, Veg ye in the Spirit, rather than walk in the Spirit. And I was happy to just be a vegetable for Christ. But God was trying to move me on. There was a lady I heard about in the Midwest named Miss Nancy Jones who really didn't do anything. She lived in a small Midwest community. But nothing noteworthy was ever accomplished by her. She never joined anything, never worked in anything. Eventually, Nancy Jones died. And the editor of the paper was asked to put some kind of a quip in one of the weekend edition papers that would commemorate Nancy Jones. He didn't know what to write. She didn't do anything. So he decided, like any good boss... Give it to somebody that works for you. So he decided the first editor that walks in that day, the sub-editor, depending on what department, would be assigned to that task. Well, in walk first, the sports editor. And said, guess what? You have to write something for the newspaper about Nancy Jones summing up her life. He said, well, she never really did anything. He said, well, it's your job now. And so he wrote this that I heard here is on a tombstone for Nancy Jones. In some Midwest town it reads, Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. Her life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. Well, that's a sports editor for you. But I fear there's a lot of Nancy Jones Christians around. They exist in Christ, but they don't live for Christ. You might say they have a saved soul, but they have a lost life. They're spectators, not servants. They're watchers, not workers. They sit, but they don't serve. I like the proverbial couch potato. You know what that is, right? Those are people who sit around and watch television all day or all evening. That's their life, watching others do stuff. Well, there's a spiritual equivalent, the pew potato. <laughs> Armchair preachers, sermon connoisseurs, but they never really do anything. But the Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are are turned toward Him, devoted to Him. God wants to make your life count. And that begins, the key of that is worship. Because if it's true worship, if it's real, authentic worship, you'll never be the same. It will transform you. It happened with Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who saw and heard something so unique that it changed him for good. Richard Foster writes these words. If worship doesn't change us, then it hasn't been worship. To stand before the Holy One of eternity is to change. Worship begins in holy expectancy, and it ends in holy obedience. That's what happens to this prophet. We're going to read about it in chapter 6 of Isaiah. The change that I'm talking about wasn't a temporary change of an emotional high. Wee, this is great, great worship. It was the permanent change of a life lived for God. Someone once said that emotion without devotion is just commotion. Or as you've heard me say before, it's not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk once you hit the ground. Let's see how high Isaiah jumps and how straight he walks when he hits the ground. Before we do, let me give you the background. The year is 739 B.C., There's a Middle East crisis brewing. Nothing new. Very contemporary. The Assyrian Empire has come down and swept the northern kingdom of Israel already and occupied that territory and are threatening Jerusalem now. It was a very volatile time. It was a very difficult year because the king that they knew and loved had just died. Let's look at the first two verses And let's read what he saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, very important, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above the throne stood seraphim, each one having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew." That's what Isaiah saw, a vision of God in the temple, the temple in heaven or the temple in Jerusalem. We don't know which, but it was magnificent. It says it was the year King Uzziah died. Now, let me tell you about Uzziah. He's a great guy. Not that I knew him personally, but what I read about him, he was a great guy, godly, a great politician. But he became king when he was a teenager. He was 16 years of age And he was inaugurated as the king, and he sat on the throne as the king for 52 years. He brought in sort of a Victorian era in Jewish history, expanding the borders of the land, bringing in developments of the land, bringing up the standard of living, etc. His influence was felt people were secure. Though the nation was tending toward idolatry for... Isaiah, the prophet, in another part of his book early on, says the people were still worshiping at the high places, the places of idolatry. Still, all of that was pretty much quelled. It was stayed because of this godly young king, now an old king, who died. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. It would be like having a Christian president for 52 straight years who forged ahead in the nation morally and politically, and for suddenly him to die. There would be felt a, a real vacancy of heart. The throne is empty. Who's going to lead the nation? The Assyrians are already terrorizing our country. What are we going to do? It's really not much different than what the psalmist asked in Psalm 11. Looking around at the nation, he said, when the foundations are destroyed... What will the righteous do? The foundations of state, the leadership, the underpinnings of moral society. When those things are destroyed, what do righteous people do? Now that question is asked today. you got to turn on the news and find out what's going on in the Middle East. Very much like this. We're wondering what's going to happen in the election. Some of us are crossing our fingers, praying fervently. One survey I found said the majority of adults are approaching the future with a lot of doubt and fear. Instead of having an attitude of invincibility, we have an attitude, by and large, of vulnerability. In a poll, just about half of the adults that were polled said they look at the future and they feel optimistic. You say, well, that's a good chunk, that's half, but compare that to a year ago, 70% said they felt optimistic. So there's this growing uneasiness. Isaiah, like the rest of the people, was feeling a bit uneasy that their leader was gone. Who's going to lead us? The throne is empty. Ah, but I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Do you see the message here? No matter what's going on on the earth in terms of earthly throne, the throne in heaven is absolutely secure. Is evil abounding? Yes. Is Satan deceiving? Yes. Is God concerned about all the atrocities going on on the earth? Absolutely. But is God still upon his throne? Absolutely. Now, folks, this is the reason, like Isaiah, that worship is so important to us. Because we tend throughout the week, as we turn on CNN, read USA Today, listen to the late night Pundits on television talk about how bad it is, we tend to forget God is still on the throne. And so we we often gather together, at least at first, with a skewed vision of reality. It's bad. It's really bad. And so we start limiting God by our own perspective. That's where worship comes in. Worship changes the way we look at life. We look at life Admit it, like the kid who takes the telescope and turns it the other direction. Like I used to do with my brother. He'd come in the room and I could turn it around. He seemed like he was a mile away, which was convenient sometimes because I didn't want to be around him. Sometimes we can look at God that way. God, you seem so far away and the problems seem looming large in my life. There's an interesting phrase in Psalm 78. Speaking of the children of Israel, it says they limited the Holy One of Israel, God. Isn't that curious? How do you limit a limitless God? God is unlimited, all-powerful, yet they limited Him by unbelief, by a wrong perspective. Much like Jesus when He went into Nazareth, His hometown, and the Scripture says, because of their unbelief, He could do no mighty work there. How often do we come so short-sighted? into the presence of God. But then, as we gather corporately to worship and we sing songs that center on Christ and God's ability and we read the Word of God, those things we knew but forgot are reinforced. We go, oh, yes, that's right. God is still on the throne. That's why worship is important. Asaph said that was important for him. In Psalm 73, he writes, My feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. I was envious of the boastful when I looked and saw the prosperity of the wicked. You get his drift? He says, I looked around, and I saw the wicked people look like they're doing better than righteous people. Righteous people seem to be suffering. Wicked people seem to be abounding. And I almost lost it. It was enough for me to cash it in and say, why should I bother serving God? But listen to what he writes. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. He got into the sanctuary, he started looking at things with an eternal perspective. He looked at wicked people and considered the end. "Uh Uh-oh. They might be abounding now, but not for long. He looked at righteous people suffering, oh, but not for long. It changed his whole perspective. You ought to remember this, and I ought to remember this, that God is on the throne in the next few weeks, the elections. As we're wondering about Washington, D.C. and the presidency and the Congress, listen, no matter who sits on the throne of government in Washington, D.C., God Almighty will still be on the throne in heaven. That's what we ought to remember. I know that uh, some of you still think God is a Democrat or a Republican. But I gotta tell you something this morning. God has way bigger plans than that. You don't vote Him in. And there's only one party that God wants to advance, and that's His own. That's His agenda. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So God is still calling the shots. We should remember that God is on the throne as we look at the Middle East crisis. Remember, you know, Isaiah had one too, didn't he? Yes, it's horrible in that part of the world. In fact, I've been to Israel now 22 times. Every time that I can remember going on a tour to Israel, something happens, something erupts. You go, oh, we shouldn't go this year. Well, then don't go any year because there's always going to be a Middle East crisis. Believe me. Until Jesus comes, there will be one. And as I read my Bible, there has always been one. It's a volatile part of the world, which upsets a lot of people. In fact, this is where a lot of folks have problems with God. If God is so good and just and mighty, etc., why didn't he stop all the atrocities that are going on in the world? Like the professor from the University of North Carolina, when a Christian came to speak to the student body about Christ, the professor shot to his feet during the Ethiopian famine crisis, and said, where is God in Ethiopia? Doesn't God hear the screams of the babies? Why didn't God do something? And the Christian pointed out, you know, it's pretty futile and pretty lame to blame God for Ethiopia food crisis when the best-selling books in America are on dieting. We could do something about it. And for a nation that is a Christian nation, we ought to do something about it. Can't blame God for that. Remember, God is still on the throne. And Christians, we ought to remember this. When it comes to the evangelical need in our world, if you're a Christian worker, if you're an evangelist, if you are a missionary, it can get pretty discouraging out there. As you realize how many people in the world need the gospel, and you realize that about 2.8 billion have never heard of Jesus. They've never heard the gospel. That's enough to make you throw up your arms and say, well, why even work? I'll be like Miss Nancy Jones. I won't even step up to the plate. No hits, no runs, no errors. But remember, God is still on the throne. God still has a plan that includes you. I love what Oswald Chambers wrote years ago. He said, God never panics. Isn't that a great? Put that in your head. Can you picture God biting his nails? (laughs) I don't know, man. This is tough. God does not panic. There's nothing that can be done that he is not absolute master of, and no one on earth or in heaven can shut a door that he has opened, nor open a door that he has shut. But he says, but God alters the inevitable when we get in touch with him. And so what Isaiah saw, a vision of God occupying the throne in heaven. Let's now read what he heard Verse 2, above that throne stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now that psalm must have been pretty loud. The volume was cranked up to 10. Because notice verse 4, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. These are angelic beings known as seraphim. That's the Hebrew plural, seraphim, for the singular seraph, which means a blazing one, zealous one, burning one. These seem to be guardians of the blazing glory and holiness of God. Now picture these strange six-winged creatures. Two cover the face, as if to say, I dare not gaze upon the glory of God. Two cover the feet, indicating that even when I do God's service and walk about for him, there's this uh, attitude of humility, lowliness. And then with two, he flew, doing God's bidding. If you look proportionally at these wings, four of them speak of worship, Two of them speak of service. That ought to be our proportion. Upreach comes first. Worship, relationship with God. Paramount. And then our service comes off of that. Listen to the song, or the statement at least. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We call that the Trihagion. Holy, holy, holy. It emphasizes the essential character of God. You know what that means, by the way? Holy, separate, distinct, unique, not like us. He is holy without sin, absolutely perfect. Holy, holy, holy. In essence, Isaiah is getting an audio-visual demonstration of God's holiness. High and lifted up, the train of his robe magnificently fills the temple. The creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Which makes me ask the question, is holiness an essential part of our worship? Is worship filled with the holiness of God? We so often want our worship to be happy. God wants it to be holy. We think God owes it to us to make us happy. He does not. God wants to make you holy. And guess what? When you're holy, you're going to be happy. The angel doesn't say, happy, happy, happy. Or lovey, lovey, lovey. But God is joy and God is love. But the essential characteristic, God is holy. As is so often repeated in the Bible. Now this has a dramatic effect on the prophet. Verse 5 shows the drama. But I, I don't want you to read it yet. I want you to go back to chapter 5, and and look at Isaiah's statements about the nation of Israel before you look at the statement regarding himself. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah is being a prophet. That's what his calling is. He's pointing his finger at the nation's sins. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house. Add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. In other words, they parade their sin publicly. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. You see what's going on? He's getting down on the nation. He's pointing his prophetic finger at the individuals who are committing such flagrant sins against God's commandment. Which he's right in doing. But notice the difference here with what he says now in chapter 6, verse 5. After hearing and seeing the glory and holiness of God, so I said, woe is me. Not woe are you, woe are them, woe is me. I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You say, well, Isaiah just has a bad case of self-esteem, low self-esteem. He just needs his esteem raised. He should never say, woe is me. You know why he does? Because he's had a true worship experience. He sees God for who God really is. And in seeing God for who he really is, he's suddenly self-conscious. He's aware of who he really is. And you put anybody, prophet boy or not, next to holy God, and you have a disparity. You have this this." Huge difference. Here's an example. Have you ever sat or stood next to someone during the song service who has a great voice? I mean, just a oh, wow. They sound beautiful. And maybe, just maybe, you can't carry a tune. Or if you can, they wish you'd carry it out, out of the room. And so they start singing like this. And you think, whoa, is me. Or maybe you're next to somebody who's just dressed to the hilt and you kind of a slob, t-shirt, blue jeans. uh, You think, whoa, is me. One author puts it this way. You don't impress the officials at NASA with your paper airplane. (laughs) You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein just because you can write H2O. And you don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect. I think true worship will do that. It will remind us God is awesome. God is holy. God is other than His creation. I am not worthy of Him. I am undeserved. You know, a lot of old songs used to capture that. I wish we'd still write some like it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me or that other ancient hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? That stuff is missing. But Isaiah had a vision and heard the glory and holiness of God, and the only response he could have is, Woe is me. Interesting, isn't it? We we tend to look at an experience like this and say, Well, this could puff a person up. Make him really proud. Isaiah could walk around and say, You know, you peons just haven't had the experience with God that I've had. I've heard God, I've seen God, you haven't. It's enough to make him go on Christian television. (laughs) But what does it do to him? It devastates him. It devastates him. He's utterly convicted. He's not prideful, he's humbled. You show me a man filled with pride, and I'll show you a man who has never encountered God. You cannot encounter God without saying, woe is me. The Apostle Paul. The great Apostle Paul said, here's a true saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. Job. In chapter 42 of his long dissertation says, I have heard of you, God, with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you, and I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Or how about Peter? You remember the day when Jesus decided to go fishing with Peter and said, Peter, let's get in your boat and launch out into the deep. At that point... Peter was Mr. Joe, fisherman, I read Sports Illustrated, I know all about angling, you don't, guy. Jesus was just the neighborhood preacher. And he says, "Listen, Lord, we fished all night. We've caught nothing. That's the best time to fish in Galilee night. We've already tried it. Been there, done that. Nevertheless, let's go. You want to go for a nice little fishing trip? Come on in. I'll make the preacher happy. Get in the boat until Jesus says, hey, you guys, throw your nets off the side of the boat and a great catch of fish so that the nets almost break. And you know what Peter said to him? He said, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. In seeing Jesus in his glory, suddenly it flashed in his mind who he was. He saw himself, not as Mr. Joe Fisherman, but as a sinful man. I dare say that many servants of God who minister for Him could use a good dose of humility rather than to have their self-esteem raised. Encounter God in His holiness, and it will be, Woe is me. Now let's look at what he felt, because it gets better from here. In verse 6, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. You say, That didn't sound good to me. That sounds like torture to me. But it speaks of cleansing, the purification. He says, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Fine, then let's purify your lips. So the coal taken from the altar was meant to signify that. In the temple... There were two altars, you remember that? The outer court, the brass altar, where the sacrifices were were killed and the atonement for sin was made. And then there was an inner altar. Only the priest could come into that holy place. It was a golden altar where incense went up to God. Well, even if you were a priest and you could go into that holy place, you first had to stop at the outer altar and make atonement for your own sins. There had to be purification before there was adoration. So in this worship experience of God, he he sees and he hears of the holiness of God. He suddenly feels convicted of his own sin. And the angel says, I got a solution for you. Let's clean you up. And so it touched his lips. Your iniquity, he said, is taken away. Your sin is purged. He experiences victory by forgiveness, which is another element of true worship. True worship just doesn't Stop with, God is holy, He's awesome, He saved a wretch like me, but we focus on the, He saved a wretch like me. We focus on the forgiveness of God now that we know we need it. We should never walk out of a worship service saying, I'm such a creep. But rather, I've confessed my creepiness to God, and now I walk out such a forgiven creep. He saved me. He's forgiven me. Victory. I'm cleansed. I've dumped all of that before him. So that's what he saw, what he heard, what he felt. Look at the last two verses of our text, verse 8 and 9. This is what he does. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. Now, if Isaiah's experience would have stopped in the previous two verses, it wouldn't have been worship. If he would have just seen and heard and felt all this awesome conviction, it wouldn't have changed him. The fact that he was in tune and touch with God transformed him to where that when God said, hey, I'm looking for volunteers, he shot up his hand and said, right over here, God. He saw, he heard, he felt, and now he does. He volunteers. He volunteers. His upreach, worship, led to outreach. His worship eventuated in work. Send me. By the way, that's how I can tell so many of you are true worshipers. Not during the worship service. Not that if you bounce or sway or bow or stand or whatever. I can tell that you worship by looking at your life after the worship service how some of you come around during the week or get involved in men's groups or home fellowship groups or work in the children's ministry or go on mission weekends to Mexico, etc. You start working and serving. It's obvious that you have changed because you've worshipped and it's changed you to serve. Somebody once said, if your religion hasn't changed you, then it's time to change your religion. Here's the change right here, service. Service. Obedience, working for the Lord. Not like Nancy Jones, stepping up to bat. You know, I looked in the scriptures this week and discovered that the word worship and serve are together, 15 times. In fact, there are some verses of scripture that show these are appositional terms. One means the other. When Satan was tempting Jesus Christ in the wilderness, remember Jesus' response? He said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Worship and service together. So this is how it works. Our first cry to God is, Here I am, Lord, save me. Our second cry is, Here I am, Lord, sanctify me, cleanse me. But our third cry must be, Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me. Look at the question God asks. We'll close with this. God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It indicates that God is looking for anybody. Anybody to use. Now, why doesn't he just send an angel? Why would he ask the question? Okay, uh, who's going to go? Who will I send? A seraphim didn't come up and say, "Uh, I'll do it. Now, God could use angels, and he has in the past, but he's looking for a human volunteer. I've often thought, you know, God, you, you could do a whole lot better if you just send angels to preach the gospel than using us. they do a lot better job. They would, they would obey instantaneously. They'd get everybody's attention. Can you picture it today, balloon fiesta? Thousands of people gathered early morning. Suddenly, not a glow of a balloon, but whoom, a blazing angel. You think people are just going to drink coffee and eat their donuts? That was a cool balloon. They'll stop dead in their tracks. They'll listen and it will change them. But God doesn't look for angels to use on earth. He uses human lips to reach human hearts. Who will I go? Who can I send? Who will go for us? God looks for volunteers and he will take anyone who is willing to go. This is not forced labor. God won't hold a gun to your head and say, you must serve me or die. He'll just say, who will go? Will you go? And he's waiting for someone to say, right here. A couple years back, I was in a grocery store standing in line buying a few items. There was a woman in front of me and a couple more people and someone else who recognized me and turned around and said, you're Pastor Skip from Calvary, right? I said, that's right. Well, good to see you. I always wanted to meet you. Great. Good to meet you. The lady in front of me turns back, gives me the oddest look, furrows her brow, says, are you a minister? I said, yeah. And she said, why? That was all. Why? As if to say, of all the things you could be consigned, sentenced to, you're a minister? Why? I said, well, somebody held a gun to my head, said if I didn't preach, no. I want to. There's two reasons why I am who I am. Number one, because God will use anybody. <laughs> and number two, because I was willing to go. I've often said, God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies those that he calls. He's looking for the person who says, Okay, I'll do it. I'll go for it. Somebody once asked St. Francis of Assisi. At that time, he was just Francis... They ask him how how he could accomplish so much work. How could you accomplish so much work for the Lord? This is what he said. God looked down from heaven and said, Where can I find the weakest, littlest man on earth? He saw me and he said, I found him. I will work through him because he will not be proud. He'll see that I'm only using him because of his insignificance. Ooh, there's a truth there, isn't there? 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world. You know why some of you aren't being used? Because you're too proud. Well, I'm pretty special, you know. God, you can't pass up a deal like this. Come on. Oh, God will find somebody who will just say, I'm weak, I'm insignificant, but would you use me? Have you noticed the pattern? When God created the heavens and the earth and then God made man, what did God make man out of? Uranium? Dust. Dust. The dust of the earth. The common stuff. When God spoke to Moses, did he do it through a burning cedar? Magnificent cedar? No, a bush in the middle of the desert. They said of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? When Joshua crossed the Jordan and built commemorating altar to the Lord, did he use fine marble? No, river stones. David killed Goliath. He was just a kid using the advanced weaponry of a sling and a stone. He didn't have a phaser from Star Wars. Simple, weak stuff. Don't be like Nancy Jones. Step up to the plate. You'll have some Hits, some runs, but you'll have some errors. But your life will count. We all know the Great Commission, don't we? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. We call that the Great Commission. There is something I call the Great Omission to worship. You won't really effectively go out into all the world and preach very much the gospel unless you have a life-transforming relationship with the living God. And when you worship Him, the result will be the Great Commission. Father, we thank you that serving you is such an honor, such a privilege. We count it a privilege. I pray, Father, that we would seek the living God in our worship to contact you, to not be content with just observing or watching or being armchair preachers, but authentic worshipers, Seeing you in your holiness and your glory, knowing our own failures and faults, but also seeing the forgiveness, the solution to that, and in seeing that you delight in using cleansed sinners to reach nations. May that coal touch our lips, our minds, our hearts. Then send us, Lord, to promote your agenda, your kingdom. May it come. May your will be done. We're yours, Lord. Use us. Send us. And I pray for anyone who's come this morning, Lord, who doesn't have a rich relationship with you, that they would come into contact with the living God by surrendering their lives in relationship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.